Let's pray together before we get started. Lord, we're grateful for the love that you've given us, the hope that we have in Christ, the ability that we have to gather together as your church and sing our praises. And Lord, like that last song said, I pray that you would set the church on fire, give us a passion for your kingdom, for the lost, uh, for the love that we need to share with one another. And I pray that through that, we would win this nation back uh, to honoring you. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that we would understand everything about salvation comes from your grace. A free gift offered to you, offered from you through Christ. I pray that we understand that there's nothing that we can do to earn that, nothing that we do to deserve it, but that we can focus solely on the gift that you've given us. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our ears to what you would have for us today. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So last week, we wrapped up the first missionary journey in the book of Acts that took place in Acts 13 and 14. Over the course of several sermons, we looked at the path of the trip. I gave you the map. We followed that around. We saw the constant conflict that Paul and Barnabas experienced Uh, as they went through each one of those places. And we saw the praiseworthy experience of seeing both Jews and Gentiles come to faith as they faithfully walked this path. And when Paul and Barnabas finished this journey, they returned back to their sending church, the church in Antioch. And they told them all that God had done among the Gentiles throughout their trip and that closed out... uh, Uh, Luke closed out chapter 14 by saying that Barnabas and Paul spent a considerable amount of time uh, with the disciples there. Of course, this now brings us to Acts 15. Uh, And in Acts 15 verses 1 to 35, we're about to see an important discussion about the nature of salvation among the early church and its leaders. The question that's ultimately being asked in verses 1 to 35 of chapter 15 is what is required of believers to become part of the Christian faith, right? What is required of believers to be part of the Christian faith? What must you do or what must be done in order for you to be saved, All right? Opening up the chapter, there's going to be a challenge. We're going to see a challenge uh, about the notion that when people come into relationship With Jesus, they must do something. But as the church, we believe solely that a relationship with Christ is done by grace alone through faith alone. All right, we'll look at verses 1 to 5, and you'll see this challenge to that that I'm referring to. Acts 15, 1 to 5 says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, And they reported all that God had done with them. 
But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So right out of the gate, in verse 1, we encounter the problem. Right? Men come down from Judea. They begin to teach the brothers that uh, they, the Gentiles, needed to be circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses in order to be saved. So already we're seeing Jesus plus something else is required for salvation. And at first glance, we may want to villainize these men that came down from Judea and began teaching this way, right? We're used to Jews stirring up trouble for the Christians, uh, and so we might overlook the fact that these men who came down from Judea were also believers in Christ, and what we're seeing is that they had an understandable misconception of the nature of salvation, right? This confusion for them about the difference between the old covenant with God's people and the new covenant that had been established through the life, death, and resurrection is understandable. For centuries, the Jews had been considered God's chosen people. Right? All the way back to Genesis is what we're talking about here. And for centuries, the sign that you were among God's people was the sign of circumcision. Right? This sign was established in Genesis 17 as God is speaking to Abraham in verses 9 to 14 of Genesis 17, God says this, God also said to Abraham, As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if you were a male... Israelite, as a sign of being part of God's covenant, you were circumcised when you were eight days old. And if there are any people who were outside of Israel who came to faith in Yahweh as they encountered the people of Israel, this did happen from time to time, all of the males who came to faith also had to be circumcised as a sign of their faith. And they were expected to adhere to the rituals in the Torah in order to be accepted in the community of God's people. So here we are, you've got a group of people who have been following these customs for centuries. Now, the church is operating under a new covenant. And we're seeing that there is confusion among the Jewish believers about how to interact with the people in this new covenant. Right? They're thinking we have all these rules that must be followed as God's people. There are all these ceremonial laws that God gave us to make sure that we were pure and that we were clean. Uh, and you guys aren't following any of those laws. So what, I mean, what do we do? So these men from Judea are innocently trying to get these Gentile believers, in their mind, they're trying to get them back on track. You're not following any of the rules. So you can't be in the people of God if you're not following the rules. So by telling them that they need to be 
circumcised in order to be part of this community, they're trying, they're trying to help. But this is a mistake. They don't understand the nature of the new covenant at this point. But as I said, it's a completely understandable mistake. And in verse 2, we see that Paul and Barnabas, they don't agree with what's being presented by these Jewish believers from Judea. We know that it says they enter into a serious argument and debate with them about the nature of salvation. All right, so they hear this presentation from these men from Judea, and they disagree, and so they enter into a serious argument and debate. So it's important to note here that no matter how far back the church goes, there's always instances of disagreement. Right? It, it, is, it always has happened. It always will happen. We're human. And so there are moments when we reach the limits of our understanding, right? when we just get to the point where we don't know any better. There are certain things that we don't know where God is concerned. And we also will, from time to time, reach the limits of our hold on our own sinfulness. Right? You ever get to the point sometimes where you just can't hold in your selfishness anymore, you can't hold in your tongue anymore, and you just put it out there into the world, right? Something bitter and hateful, something selfish, all right? We just reach the limits of our self-control uh, where we sin on purpose or by accident. Um, and because of this, if we're in relationship with one another for any length of time, right, we're going to run into this. We're going to have these issues from time to time. It's the nature of of sinful humanity to have conflict. And it's important to know when we run into these issues how to have these disagreements well. All right? We need to learn to disagree well. And we can see by the way that Paul and Barnabas responded to these misconceptions of the men from Judea that it's important to confront people. It's important to address those issues when they're wrong about the gospel. Right? The gospel is of the utmost importance to the church, to the people of God. So there's nothing more important that we can do than defend the gospel. Right? We need to have a clear understanding of the gospel. So when somebody else comes in and starts spreading something that's not the gospel, we need to be able to say, that's not right, you need to stop. Right? We must confront people when they have distorted the gospel. But we also must do this in a way that honors Christ. Right? There's a right way and a wrong way to disagree. Right? Just because someone is wrong about the gospel or some other aspect of the Christian faith, it doesn't mean that we're free to just completely disregard all the other teachings that we have in Scripture about how we're supposed to treat people. Right? Like just because they might not agree with us on a certain aspect of the faith or because they have a distorted, view, a distorted view of the gospel does not mean that we get to treat them in a hostile way. Right? It doesn't mean that we get to mistreat them. All right? So we confront people with the hope of restoration with them. That's the whole point of confrontation is to restore relationship. We confront people in love for their good. right? Not to get our way, not so that our selfishness is appeased, but so that the other person may flourish in what they're trying to do in the right way. 
Right? We can't tear people down in the name of Jesus. All right? I know for a fact, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, any of the other, other social medias, you see Christians defending everything and you know, they're calling people fool, uneducated, you know, do your research. And I mean, it's just hateful, 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 hateful. And I'm sorry, you cannot tear people down in the name of Jesus. It is incompatible with the Christian faith. You can't rip people apart and then be like, praise Jesus on Sunday. That doesn't work. So our hope and desire in all conflict, all conflict should be that Christ is honored and the people that we're in conflict with would grow in their understanding of the gospel. Right? If you get into it with somebody else, especially someone who's highly opposed to Christianity, if your goal at the end of that is to win that argument, you've already lost the argument. Your goal at the end of that should be to honor Christ and to make sure that person walks away with a better understanding of the gospel because of your presence in their life. Right? So if you're a good debater... And someone presents something and you just shred them apart and you walk away with a swagger because you won the debate, you lost the debate. The whole point is to honor God and to make sure they have a better understanding of the gospel when you're done with the conflict. And on top of this, we should also understand that we aren't perfect ourselves. There might be something that can be learned about the con from the conflict we can learn something about ourselves in this process right we might be learning about sinful habits or tendencies that we have right in that conflict it might they may be wrong but in that process we might learn something about ourselves through the conflict we might learn something about the gospel that we've misunderstood all right, so when we enter into conflict, we have to have this mindset going into it. And if you don't talk to yourself about that before you go in, you're not going to remember it at, in the moment. Right? You just got to win at all costs, whatever it takes. And so we have to be mindful of this before the conflict gets here. And we don't see how Paul and Barnabas handle the situation here, but we do see that they take it seriously. Right? It's so important that the gospel is understood proper, properly and that it's taught correctly that Paul and Barnabas entered into serious argument and debate. And we see that the church in Antioch took this so seriously that they send Paul and Barnabas all the way to Jerusalem in order to have this whole process addressed right? by the leadership of the church. They want this addressed, and so they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, which is a, a trek of 250 miles, approximately, from Antioch to Jerusalem. And so that's how serious it is. We want you to go 250 miles one way to speak to these people so that we have a defined understanding of the gospel. And on their way... Luke says they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, and when they were there, they told the churches there about all that they had done for the Gentiles with the gospel. And it says that this brings great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Right? When, when the gospel goes forth, when we see people saved, when we see people coming from death to life, it should bring us joy. We should want it so much that we put that at the top priority of our life to see people coming to faith in the gospel and bringing joy to the church 
because we see people coming into salvation. And when they finally arrive in Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported there all that God had been doing with them. All right, so they're informing everybody of what's been going on, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and they said, it is necessary, it is necessary to circumcise them, being the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if you were here during our study of the book of Matthew, you know that the Pharisees are all about keeping the law. Even the law that they made up. Right? They're all about keeping the law of Moses. They've devoted their lives to the adherence of that law. And here they have converted to Christianity and they're having a difficult time understanding the new covenant. Right? We're not under the old covenant anymore. Now we're under the new covenant. And one thing that we should see in this all right, is that it proves that it is possible to be in Christ and still have some misconceptions about what, about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Right? Just because you got saved doesn't mean you have it all together. Right? Scripture talks consistently about the, the sanctification process and when we come to faith, we're like babies. And then as we grow in that, we begin to mature into adulthood of the faith. Or we should at least. There are instances where Paul has said to the Corinthians specifically, like, you should be eating meat right now, but you're still drinking milk. Like, you have not matured in your faith the way that you should. But we see that it's possible to be wrong about something and still be a Christian. Right? We, it's allowed to have misunderstandings. Ignorance about an issue doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't Christians. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, right? We can't jump to that conclusion, uh, but just because someone has a misunderstanding, it doesn't mean that they're lost. I think sometimes we get to the point where it's like, oh, you didn't know that? You can't, be, you can't love Jesus, right? You're not that far in your faith? Well, you obviously don't love Jesus, right? Let's not immediately jump to that conclusion. Let's help people get to where we are. That is the whole purpose of the discipleship process. Right? You have been pulled along by somebody, or maybe you've had to do it on your own, and so you're supposed to be like Paul to Timothy. You're supposed to grab their hand and bring them to where you are. And so these believers, these brothers in Christ, were mistaken about what it meant to follow Jesus. So the leaders meet to discuss the issue, and they come to a conclusion in verses 6 to 19. So follow along with me as I read that. The apostles and the elders gathered to, to consider this matter. After, they, they, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as is written. After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes all these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. So the apostles and the elders, elders they gather together to discuss this issue. This is a big deal. And after they've thoroughly discussed the problem, Peter gets up to speak on the outcome of their decision. He reminds the church about how God had called him to go to the Gentiles in order to share the gospel with them. So at this point, this would have been about 10 years ago when Peter had gone up on the roof and saw the vision and then had to go to visit with Cornelius and his family, the, the Gentiles, right? They weren't allowed to go in and God said, go in. God said, don't call what I have made clean, unclean. All right, so he's given permission by God to go preach the gospel to the, the Gentiles. And as he was sharing the gospel with them, he didn't even get through his entire gospel presentation. The Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles like their own Pentecost moment, and they start speaking in tongues right there in front of him. Right? He didn't even do the altar call. It just happened. And so we see here these people, these Gentiles, they were never circumcised. And yet, the Holy Spirit fell on them in the same way that the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews at Pentecost. Right, Peter points out, only God knows their heart. He knows if they've been saved or not, uh, but the Holy Spirit's not going to fall on people who had not been converted. Right, so, therefore, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurred with the Gentiles, they now have the same stake in the faith that the Jews have. God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. He simply cleansed their hearts by faith. And because of this, he asks, so why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples next by neither, that neither our ancestors nor us could carry? Why are you putting it on them when we can't do it? By saying this, Peter is saying that no one has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. No matter how hard you try, you're going to fail at some point. Probably a lot. And here, he points out that these brothers in Christ are now trying to put a burden on the new Gentile believers by trying to get them to keep the law that they weren't able to keep. And it's in this inability to keep the law that points to our need for the Savior. Like the whole purpose of the law is to be a mirror to show you how much you can't keep it. Every day we look at it and we go, nope, failed at that, failed at that, failed at that, failed at that. I need Jesus. Right? God expects that his law is to be perfectly kept in order to have a relationship with him. If you want a relationship with God, that 
relationship has to have no flaws in it whatsoever. And we simply can't do it. We can't do it. We fail without trying. It happens all the time. And James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Right? Let's say you lived the most perfect life of any human being other than Jesus. Like you're the next in line for the most perfect. And you only made one mistake in your entire life. Here James is saying that when you made that one mistake, you broke the entire law. Because God requires perfection. So we've broken God's law and we've been condemned for our rebellion against God in our sin, which means that we are separated from God. If we are separated from God when we die, we will be separated from God for eternity. We will be sent to a place called hell, which was never designed for God's people in the first place. But because we have rebelled and pushed back against God in our rebellion, we get sent there and separated from God forever. That's what we have earned. For the wages of sin are, is death. When we sin, we earn death. But the good news of the gospel is that because God loves his people, he sent his son Jesus to live the life that you and I couldn't live. Right? By keeping all of the law perfectly, he honored God through every aspect of his life. And then God sent him to the cross to die and pay our punishment for our sin so that he could atone for our sin. The payment had to be made. Jesus paid it for us. And then after being raised from the dead three days later, he conquered sin and he conquered death forever. And then he presents his righteousness to us as a gift. I took your sin on me. I'm presenting my righteousness, the 100%, the A plus that he got for his life on earth. He presented that as a free gift, no strings attached. There's nothing that you can add to it. And if you added to it, you would lose it all. He presents that to us for salvation. We don't have to be circumcised to be saved. We don't have to be baptized to be saved. We don't have to take the Lord's Supper to be saved. Right? We don't have to do anything. All of these things are an outward sign of an inward reality. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Period. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works. So no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So he created us to do good works, but none of those good works can save us. We work out of the love of God that we have been shown, and so we do work after we're saved because we love Jesus. It doesn't, you get no check marks, right? Came to church, check. Read his Bible, check. Put in an offering, check. Slap high fives with the kid across the aisle. Check. Pray for somebody. Check. None, you're, yes, do all of that. You're supposed to do these things. But none of them merit your salvation. Right? Just being here does not make you a Christian. If you're not saved and this is what you do on Sunday morning, 
right? You just need a better hobby. Right? This is a place to worship God, to know Him, to love Him, to be educated, and so that you can leave from this place, take what you've learned, and share it with the world. But being here doesn't do anything for you as far as your relationship with God. He's not taking attendance. We have these things, we do these things in order to honor God, to show Him that we love Him, to show other people what a life lived for God should look like. All right? So if we are saved, we still try to keep the moral law, though. Okay? Still not out there killing people, still not out there stealing and lying. If we're saved, we're supposed to be as much like Jesus as we can be. That should be the goal of every day to become more like Jesus than we were yesterday. Right? But nothing you do warrants salvation. In verse 11, Peter acknowledges that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So after that, Barnabas and Paul, they tell of all the things that God has done uh, through them with the Gentiles. And once they're done speaking, James the half-brother of Jesus gets up to speak to the church. He's the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he agrees with Peter and acknowledges that the prophet said that this would happen. He quotes there, uh, we're not going to read any of this, but he quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12, and from Isaiah 45, 21, if you want to go back and look at that. Um, but he says, uh, for people not to cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. All that James wants to instruct the Gentile believers to do is to abstain from th these things. Abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, anything that has been strangled, and from blood. And if you are like me, when you read that, you're like, what, what are these things that he's telling these people to stay away from? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Some of these are weird. Like, why should the Gentile believers abstain from anything that has been strangled or anything that has blood in it? What's the deal? Well, when the Gentiles came to faith and they're now entering into relationship with the Jews, there are cultural issues in the Gentiles' life that are going to cause problems for the, for the Jews. All right, so James is encouraging his new Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ to be mindful about how some of these things will impact their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, and he wants them to seek healthy relationships in this community. So he says, look, if you do these things, if you eat that meat that's been sacrificed to that idol, or you eat anything that's been strangled, you eat anything that still has the blood in it, like your brothers and sisters from the Jewish culture are going to or they're going to have problems with that right we even see later in the book of corinthians that paul eventually tells the people in corinth you just obey your conscience right you can eat that food that's been sacrificed to an idol right they would treat it like a restaurant and you can go and do that but don't do that if it's going to cause somebody around you to stumble right if you like give up all of your rights so that other people can flourish and this is what James is talking about here, right? They just, he just wants them to show love and care for the brother and sister in Christ who may get hung up on the fact that what you're eating was strangled, what you were eating was sacrificed to an idol, and I can't, I can't deal with that. 
And so James is saying, if that's the case, then put that down for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ. And to continue on in the passage in verses 22 to 35, we see that the letter that the church in Jerusalem, we see the letter that the church in Jerusalem sent out to the Gentile believers regarding this uh, problem. And we also see the outcome. In verse 22, it says, The apostles and the elders uh, with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we have sent Judas and Silas, therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood and eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. And then it says, So they were sent off, and they went to Antioch after gathering the assembly. They delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. So the letter is given to these men. They take it. They deliver it to the church in Antioch. Uh, the church in Jerusalem also send uh, some of their heavy hitters, some of their uh, leading men uh, to Antioch in order to be word of mouth. Like, did they really say this in this letter? And they're there to say, yes, yeah, we're there. We're, you know, right hand guy, left hand guy. They sent us so that we can affirm everything that was in this letter. And so they, when they got together and they talked about this, they voted on it unanimously. And so this is the canon of the church at this point, right? Gospel through uh, grace alone. In Christ alone, through faith alone. I think I said that backwards, but that's okay. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's going to be number one in our application point today. There's nothing else that we can add to our salvation to make us more loved in the eyes of God. If you could add to it, then Jesus' sacrifice was completely unnecessary. Right? If you could do it, Jesus didn't need to die. But because you can't do it, Jesus died for you. He died so that you could have relationship with God the Father again. He died so that you could live. And so if you're here this morning and you're hearing this, and you're like, you know, I feel like I've been going through the motions. I feel like I've been trying to check those boxes off. And I don't actually have that relationship with Christ. Like today is the day that you need to get right with the Lord. You need to understand the beauty of the gospel. You need to understand that none of those things merit your salvation. And you need to put your faith in Christ. Right? But on the other side of that, 
if you are saved, those works that don't merit any more love from God for you should be something that you do for God. Right? I want to be here with the, the people of God. I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to give an offering. I want to be in relationship with God's people. I want to serve those who are hurting in the community. I want to share the gospel with the lost, not because it gets me anything, but because that's what Jesus did. And if we love Christ, we should be like Christ. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And number two, right? just a, a, a brief reminder about something that was passed over very quickly in our passage. But if we disagree, you ever been in a, in a church where people disagreed? No? Okay. Um, when we disagree, we need to be able to do that in a way that honors Christ. Right? We're going to have our issues. We're going to have our bump ups. We're going to see things differently from time to time. And when that happens, it's okay to disagree. But it is not okay to treat someone poorly because you disagree with them. It's not okay to treat them as something other than a brother and sister in Christ because they didn't do something according to your preferences or according to the way that you think it should be done. Right, we are supposed to interact with one another in a way that astounds the watching world because of how much we love each other. And when you love someone and you spend time with someone, you're going to have issues. But we need to make sure that we honor Christ through those issues. So if there's anybody here today who has beef with someone else, maybe today's the day that you get that taken care of. Just remember to disagree in a way that honors the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I am amazed by your grace. I'm amazed by how much you loved us, what you were willing to sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of the gospel in a way that changes our life, that transforms us into people who give everything that we have in pursuit of honoring and bringing you glory. Lord, help us to go from this place with this beautiful message of the gospel about how dead people can come to life through the work of Christ on the cross. Help us to be so moved by that that it shapes our life. It changes the reason why we do things. It changes how we interact with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family. But God, we got to see it for the beauty that it is. And I pray today that you would give us eyes to see it. That we would be motivated by it when we leave this place here today. So Holy Spirit, please change our hearts. Open our eyes, open our ears, and change our hearts so that we can see this the way that you would have us to see it and serve you in a way that brings you honor and glory throughout all of our life. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray.